0: Oh, I'm so glad that you could join us today online. It's great to have everybody together and enjoy this incredible time of worship and now have some time of worship around God's Word. Before we get into the message, I just want to say a word about meeting online and when we'll be back together as a church. As many of you know, uh, the state of Texas and our governor has decided to begin to reopen businesses and kind of doing a soft rollout. Honestly, a lot of the regulations as, as it relates to the number of people that can gather in a space just really do not work for a church our size at this point. We also know that in the first couple of weeks, this is kind of an experiment to see if there's a spike in cases. We think that it's the best wisdom at this point in time, given both these regulations and how they really don't fit a congregation our size, given the fact that we don't have enough sanitizer to adequately disinfect from service to service, that at least for the next two weeks, we're going to continue online. We will evaluate. We're going to keep you informed. Of course, we're all looking forward to getting back together, but we want to do that safely, and we want to guard our vulnerable people in the process. So continue to pray. Pray that this ends up being a really successful experiment with our state. Pray for those who are sick right now who are really struggling. We have People in our church and people related to those in our church that are struggling with these issues related to coronavirus. And so, if you would join me in this time of prayer as we look to him about not only that, but what he wants to say to us during this time together. Let's pray. Father, I just want to lift up all the people in our church. There are so many, God, who've been so affected by the coronavirus people who've lost jobs, people who've seen their businesses shut down or take a real hit. There are those whose family members are right now in the hospital and fighting this disease. There are many people who are uh, sick or vulnerable, uh, and they have preconditions that cause them to have to be extra careful. God, I just pray that you would continue to provide for them all that they would need and that we as a church would use this time as a time to unite and to be the church, not just to one another, but to our community and to the world. We thank you, God, for what you're doing in this place, and we thank you now for what you're going to do in our time together. We know that you're here already, you're in our homes, you're visiting among us, you have a message for us today. Give us ears to hear, hearts that are open, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, chapter three of the book of Philippians begins with a command uh, to rejoice. This is what Paul says, finally, my brothers. Rejoice in the Lord. It is of no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, you remember what the word rejoice means. Rejoice means to return to the source of joy. And what that's a reminder of is the fact that God is a God of joy. And if we want real joy in our life, we return to the one who is Himself joy. In other words, if you find yourself lacking in joy, what you need is a lot more of God. Now, like I've already said, the book of Philippians is the most joyful book in the New Testament, but it's not Pollyannish. It's, it's not saying that everything is fine and everything's turning up daisies. It's not saying that at all. Instead, Paul writes this during a two-year prison stint, chained 24-7 to an imperial Roman guard, not knowing if he's going to live or die. The kind of joy that Paul's talking about is a joy that's impervious to adversity, one that stays with us through good times and through bad, one that we can count on no matter what our personal circumstances are like. And I think we would all agree that joy is something we need, that our world needs, that really, literally, everyone truly seeks. We want joy, real joy, not temporary happiness highs, not the kind of distractions that that are amusements that kind of just cause us to forget about our problems for a little bit of time, but instead, joy that sustains us, joy that's there in good times and bad, joy that is there that makes a difference. We want that, we crave it, we desperately need it. And that's what this book is about. So in chapter three of Philippians, what Paul does is he kind of makes a shift, and he wants to talk to us about one of the greatest joys in the spiritual life. The one thing guaranteed to rob you of your joy and that's legalism. Legalism is a belief that there's something I have to add to the completed work of Christ. Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus my ability to keep the rules. My Jesus plus my conformity. Jesus plus obeying the law, my good works. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson was a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He said, and I agree, that, that legalism has to be the most serious problem facing present-day Christianity. And not just that, it was a serious problem in the New Testament church. What Johnson believed is that legalism is Christianity's most persistent and perennial problem. Listen to what he said. Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer. Nothing is left but cramped, somber, dull, and listless profession. The truth is betrayed and the glorious name of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. The Christian under law is a miserable parody of the real thing. Man, don't hold back, Dr. Johnson. What do you want to say? Even the Bible teacher, Beth Moore, said the same thing. Listen, legalism stops our enjoyment of God's presence. In other words, our joy is tied to the presence of God because God himself is joy. If we want to have more joy, we need more of him. But if our relationship with God gets distorted, If we think that our relationship with God is all about our ability to keep the rules, then joy is going to slip through our fingers. And not just that, we will become those miserable parodies of an actual Christian. John Piper once made a comparison between legalists and alcoholics. And he believed, and I agree, that legalism is far worse than the sin of alcoholism. Listen to what he said. Satan keeps his deadliest diseases most sanitary. He clothes his captain in religious garments and houses his weapons in temples. Legalism is a more dangerous disease than alcoholism because it doesn't look like one. Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps them succeed in the world. Alcoholism makes men dependent on the bottle. Legalism makes them self-sufficient depending on no one. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism gives it strength. Alcoholics don't feel welcomed in the church legalists love to hear their morality extolled in church. So let me give you a practical example of this. Let's let's say that one week in your life, everything's going great. I mean, your devotions are a big hit. Just every time you sit down to read God's word, you feel like God is meeting with you personally. We call these mountaintop experiences with God. I mean, everything is hitting just right. During the week, you share your faith with someone and it makes a huge difference for them. And not just that, you feel like when you pray, God is there, there's this overwhelming sense of his presence. When you go to worship and you come to church, you just feel like God is everywhere, like you could reach out and literally touch him. That's one week. Now let's say the next week, it doesn't go so well. Your time with God kind of gets pushed aside by other more urgent matters. Uh, And it's not just that you know, you and your wife, you're not getting along, you have this big knockdown, drag-out fight, you lose your cool more than one time, your kids are acting like the spawn of Satan, you pray, but they feel like it's just bouncing off the ceiling, and then you go to church and you just feel dead inside, you just feel like nothing is happening for you. Now, here's my question. On which Sunday did God love you more? If you said yes to either one, if you chose one over the other, then you're guilty of the sin of performance, which is, in essence, the sin of legalism. What I'm saying is spirituality, as most of us understand it, is not spirituality at all. A lot of people think of spiritual people as those who read their Bible every day, they pray every day, they never get angry or rattled, they possess special powers, have an inside track to God. Spirituality, for many people, kinda has this otherworldly ring to it. But what's really odd is that Jesus never defined spirituality in that way. In fact, the way he defined spirituality drove his enemies nuts because he always seemed to include the excluded. He, he said that the non-religious people were better examples. In fact, he criticized the good religious people. Jesus taught us that spirituality is not a formula, it's not a test, it's a relationship. The spirituality is not about competency, it's about intimacy. It's not about perfection, it's really about connection. Now this is at the heart of what Paul has to say to us in Philippians chapter three. But where he begins is with the simple fact that the truth matters. You see, there were some false teachers who had infiltrated the church at Philippi, and they taught that you had to do more than just simply believe in Jesus Christ. What they said is you needed Jesus plus circumcision. You needed Jesus plus conforming to the Old Testament law. They loved to sing that old gospel song, Jesus Almost Paid It All." Of course, that's not the name of it because that's the way they thought, though, that we had to add our part to what Christ has already done in order to be saved. When someone tells you it doesn't matter what you believe, just be sincere. Just know that that person's never read the Bible. Most every book in the New Testament does, in one way or another, correct some form of false teaching. And Paul has some really pointed, sharp things to say to these false teachers in Philippi, and that's what he says in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So Philippians 3 begins with a warning to beware of the dogs. Paul called the false teachers dogs. He's being intentionally provocative here. Now in Paul's day, dogs were dirty, disease-carrying scavengers that roamed the streets and pack. They often hung out at the local garbage dump, and they attacked anybody that crossed their path. Please understand, I'm not talking about your beloved Fifi. I'm talking about Cujo here. It was common for Jewish people in those days to describe outsiders, to describe Gentiles as dogs. So what Paul does here is he flips the script. He says, no, you're the real outsider. You see, these false teachers, they're saying that you have to keep the law in order to be saved, and you have to be circumcised. Paul says they're mutilators of the flesh because what they're actually teaching is that you have to become a Jew first before you can know Christ. They were requiring new believers to literally cut their own flesh, but what they're doing in the process is mutilating people's souls. So let's be honest. Circumcision is not really an issue today. In fact, as I say that these Philippian false teachers were were requiring you to be circumcised, to be saved. That just kind of goes over our head. We don't relate to it. So let me give you a little bit of context. Circumcision is the mark, the symbol of the covenant that God made with Abraham. As such, that means that circumcision has literally marked or identified Jewish people for all time. When Christianity started out, it's a Jewish Messiah with Jewish disciples largely living a very Jewish life. What happens is Gentiles, after Christ has resurrected and ascended back into heaven, the Gentiles start flooding into the church. And the big question is, how much do they need to become like us to be a Christian? This is what the book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts is all about the church in transition, trying to figure this stuff out. Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be Christ followers? And what we find in the book of Acts is the leaders of the church finally and firmly decide it was not necessary for a Gentile to become Jewish. They just needed to follow Jesus. Now, the rationale behind that is because circumcision was always just a symbol. It represented a special relationship with God, but did not replace it. You know, for all time, God's people understood that it took more than just a mark on your body to have a relationship with God. What I'm saying is this, we never want to confuse the ritual with the reality. Because true circumcision is not just about cutting the flesh, true circumcision, what it represents is circumcision of the heart, that God's longing to cut out the powerful dominion of sin within us. So circumcision has always and only been a symbol of a greater truth, a greater reality. But now that the new reality is here, the symbol's no longer necessary. Just like the temple. The temple was a symbol of the dwelling place of God. When Christ arrived on the earth, his body became the new temple, the dwelling place of God. When he ascends and the Holy Spirit comes, we become the new temple, the dwelling place of God. Once the reality is here, the temple, that actual physical structure, is no longer needed. In the same way, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was just a symbol. It was a symbol of what was necessary to make atonement for sin. But once the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come and given his life, that symbol is no longer necessary. So that's what happened with circumcision. All that God really wanted was a circumcised heart. We're God's new reality. In fact, this is what Paul says next. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying we don't need a physical operation because we've already had a spiritual heart transplant. The false teachers, they think they're so spiritual, but they're actually just butchers. They're cutting into men's bodies, but they can't cut to the heart of the problem, which is this sin sickness in the human condition. So this is why Paul has some very sharp words to say, because, you know, at one point, not only did he understand there's a danger in this kind of teaching, but he bought into it himself. At one point, he was just like them. He knows where this road leads. This is not just a detour in the spiritual life. This is a spiritual dead end. So what Paul is gonna do next is he's gonna tell his story of when he relied on his own morality and ability to keep the rules. I call the next point, been there, done that, destroyed my walk with God. Here's how he continues. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. At one point, Paul does put complete confidence in his own ability and his own performance, which ultimately bottom line is what legalism is is to put more confidence in the self than we put in God. Paul learned how bankrupt that actually was. So he explains here his personal spiritual pedigree. He had it all. He had racial purity, patriotism, fluency in the old language, strictness, discipline, zeal. He's as straight as an arrow. None of these teachers in Philippi even came close to the pedigree, to the background, the resume that Paul himself had. Now, if you aren't impressed by what Paul just said, it's because you're not a Jew living in the first century. What Paul is saying is if religion could get you into heaven, then I was guaranteed a front row seat. His resume is as good as it gets. You see, there's still a lot of people today that are just like Paul once was. They look at their spiritual resume, and they say, you know, it's not too bad. You know, maybe it's not as good as Paul's, but I'm confident it's good enough to get into heaven. So what they do, they go to church occasionally. They try to be a good person. haven't killed anybody lately, they try to help others, and they think, you know, all that together, surely God's going to let me in. They're a part of the oldest religion on this planet, and that's the the do-the-best-you-can religion. They figure as long as you can do your best, when you die, God's just going to kind of nod his head and say, oh, come on in anyway. Most people sincerely believe that doing your best is the ticket to heaven. But Paul's whole perspective changed the day he met Jesus. For the first time in his life, he saw the futility of the Jewish faith the way he practiced it. In essence, what Paul had to do was lose his religion to find his salvation. And this is when Paul says something really strong. Basically, he says the false teachers, they're selling a steaming pile of scuba. Now, I'll explain that term in a minute, but I first want you to hear what Paul says. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. So get this, Paul now begins to speak in accounting terms, in terms of profit and loss. And he sees that the things that he once trusted in, his own pedigree, his resume, his his own morality, all of his assets, he adds them up and he puts them in one column, a liability column, a debit column. So everything he's ever done, everything he's ever accomplished, he puts that in one column, and in the other column, he puts Jesus. He says, Jesus is the one asset, that outweighs anything and everything I could have ever accomplished on my own. Now think about what Paul has put in the lost column, in in the liability column. He's put his national heritage, his ethnic background, his religious training, his training as a Pharisee, his zeal for his faith, his own moral character. He puts all of that in the lost column. He says, take your whole life what you consider to be valuable, what you consider to be really worthwhile, your best achievements, put that all on one side of the scale and then turn around and put Jesus on the other side of the scale. Jesus will literally outweigh anything and everything you've ever trusted in because he's more valuable, he's more precious, he outweighs your best intentions. So what I'm saying is, is Paul understands what the false teachers don't, that Jesus Christ and his righteousness is all that you and I will ever need. Anyone who would lead you to trust in yourself over Jesus is leading you into spiritual debt and bondage. So now listen to the confession of Paul, who considered himself one of the best rule keepers ever. He says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, this, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. What Paul says about his rigorous rule keeping is I count it all garbage. Now what's interesting is garbage is not the word in the original Greek. In fact, it's translated in a lot of different ways in different Bibles, depending on the Bible you're reading right now. It's probably translated rubbish, maybe even dung, but there's a lot of translations. We don't really know exactly what this word meant, because it's the only place it occurs in the Bible. So if you want to understand what a word means in the Bible, and it's the only occurrence of a word, what you have to do is you have to look to other literature of the day and how it's used. And this word was used in history. It's written about a time when a bunch of sailors were out to sea and a flock of seagulls flies overhead. And one of them lets loose and it goes right into a sailor's eye and he says, ah, scubala. Well, that should give you an idea of what this word means. And in case it doesn't, we actually have a picture from the first century of a Roman chariot. Now, don't ask me how we got this picture, but if you look really closely on the back of the chariot, you're going to see there's a bumper sticker. Now, you might have thought bumper stickers were a modern-day invention, but here we go, all the way to the first century. And if you zoom in and enhance and sharpen that part of the photo, you can actually read what's on the bumper sticker, and it says, scubala happens. Now do you understand what this word means? You see, you can recycle garbage and you can use animal dung as fertilizer, but there is no use for untreated human waste. And that's what scuba is, untreated human waste. In fact, it's so full of disease carrying pathogens that if you were to use it raw on crops, you would give everybody parasitic worm infections. This is what Paul says of his rule keeping. He says it's pure Scubula. Now, one more thing to keep in mind. Paul uses this really strong word to describe his moral accomplishments. If I were to say to you, get the sh-you-know-what out of your life, how many of you would think I was talking about your moral accomplishments? You see, for Paul, anything that keeps you from Christ is a steaming pile of you-know-what, no matter how good it looks to you which leads to this wonderful truth, the great exchange. The first thing Paul introduces us to is the difference between Christ in you versus you being in Christ. Notice the language he uses in verses eight and nine, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You know, in many churches, we're fond of saying that Jesus Christ is in my heart. I get that, I understand that. It's a good way to describe what God does for us, but do you understand that in the Bible, for every one time the Bible says that Jesus is in you, 10 times it says that you are in Christ. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. You know, imagine for you a minute, this is, this is a bookmark of mine and, of course, my Bible. I want you to imagine that this bookmark represents me and this Bible represents Jesus Christ. The Bible says, I am in Christ. So if I'm in Christ, when God looks at me, and I'm in Christ, what does he see? He sees Jesus Christ. This is so important for the truth that Paul leads into, and that is my rags for his righteousness. Listen to him elaborate now on this truth. And be found in him, to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Instead of your own efforts at being a good person, instead of trying to obey all the rules, all of which is just a steaming pile of scuba, you get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You get it not by your works, but by his works, not by your attainment, but by what he attained for you. Because you are in Christ, God sees you through his son and God sees you through Christ's righteousness. So get this, Jesus once told his followers, that what was required of them was to have a righteousness that was greater than, that surpassed that of the Pharisees. Listen to this in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now to the average first century Jew who heard Jesus say that, their first thought would have been, this is impossible, nobody can do that because the Pharisees were known as the best rule keepers on the planet. Nobody did it better in terms of obeying the rules and knowing how it's done than the Pharisees. So how can I ever possibly achieve a righteousness greater than them? So let me ask you, how do you? How do you get a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees, than the best of all the rule keepers? You get it by receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And that's what the cross is all about my death for his life, my sin for his righteousness, our rebellion for his obedience, my distance from God for his intimacy with God. This happens when you and I raise the white flag of surrender and say to God, God, I give up. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I can't fix my life on my own. I need you to do in through and for me what I cannot do for myself. I need you to heal me. Change me. Make me in to the person I'm supposed to be. You see, what, what's offered to us in Christ is not just forgiveness for our bad record, but we're given this amazing sense of complete acceptance through Christ's perfect record. In the book of Corinthians, Paul says the same thing. Listen to this. God was in Christ, restoring the world to himself, no longer counting men's sins against them, but blotting them out, God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. This has been God's plan all along. He wants to make all things right. You know that's what the word righteousness means. God is making things right. What God wants to do is he wants to right the wrongs that sin has done to our soul. It has distorted our thinking. It has absolutely deceived us emotionally. It's held us captive in our will. It's damaged our relationship. It's kept us from him. You need Jesus to make things right. We need the righteousness of Christ. Which leads to this final thing, and that is the one thing. First, let's talk about the power of a singular focus. As Paul's wrapping up this chapter, he says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, But I press on to take hold of that which Christ has taken hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, in this text, Paul begins with this bold admission I'm not there yet, I haven't achieved it yet, I'm not at that point of maturity. Unlike many leaders that I've known, Paul has no problem admitting his personal shortcomings. He's not perfect yet, and he knows it. And by the way, this is the starting point for all spiritual growth, to own our own spiritual junk. In fact, I'll go you one further. If you look at the writings of the Apostle Paul, you quickly discover that the more he matured, the more he seasoned, the more in touch he was with his own brokenness. For example, about 25 years after his conversion, he writes the book of Corinthians, and in that book he says this, I'm the least of all the apostles. About five years after Corinthians, he writes the book of Ephesians, and in that book he says, I'm the least, I'm less than the least of all saints. One year after the book of Ephesus, or Ephesians, he writes the book to Timothy, and he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Now let's leave this slide up for a minute because I want you to notice this progression. Early on in the ministry, he says, take a look at the leaders, the best of the best. Put me at the end of that line. Then he says, about five years later, hey, you know, all God's people, all the saints, all those who walk with Christ, I'm at the end of that line. And then finally, he says, take the worst of the worst, take the most messed up people, the baddest of the bad, put them all together, and I'm the chief of that motley crew. Now, Paul doesn't have some kind of bad self-image. He's not being self-deprecating here. He's simply recognizing the fact of his own brokenness and the fact that God's not done with him yet. So twice in this verse, he says, I press on, which means I'm not where I want to be, but I'm gonna keep moving in that direction. In the spiritual life, direction makes all the difference. You know, sometimes we're so quick to judge where people are. We think, well, look at that person. They made a decision for Christ, but still they have such a foul mouth. We get that way and we begin judgy because we judge somebody by where they are in relation to us, not in relation to where they started from. This is why it's so important not to be quick to judge progress. More important than your idea of progress is direction. My first question is always, What direction are they heading? Are they heading toward God? Because that's what really matters, because if they're heading in that direction, they will eventually get there. Now, there's a fierce concentration in these words that come next. He says, one thing I do. To excel at anything in life, a person must be able to say this one thing I do, not these 20 things I dabble in. You know, when I entered the ministry, my mom really pressed me to get a second degree. She wanted me to get a teaching certificate of some sort that I could go and teach in a Bible college or seminary someplace because she was afraid the preaching gig wouldn't work out. So I needed something to fall back on. And I know what she was saying. I mean, I think she recognized that there was a teacher in me, but but there was something in me that knew I had to focus on the one thing, the calling that God had on my life, to go and to share his word with people. And sure, teaching would be a part of that for sure. but But... I had to focus on one thing, not on many things. Paul says this, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. When Paul talks about forgetting here, it's really clear what he's talking about. He's talking about how he used to live, all the good, all the accomplishments, his impressive pedigree. Instead of living in the past, Paul is mindful of where God is leading today. You know, I always thank God for what he's done in my past, but God is the God of right now. Those who want to live in the past, no matter how good the past was, are living where God is not. You see, what Paul's telling us here is God is not tied to your past experiences, whether they be good or bad. Priscilla Shire said it best. She said, God is the God of right now. He doesn't want you sitting around regretting yesterday, nor does he want you wringing your hands and worrying about the future. He wants you to focus on what he's saying to you and putting in front of you right now. Now, Paul's final piece of advice is this. Weep for bad leaders, but follow faithful leaders. He says, join together in following my examples, brother and sister, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. When Paul writes about enemies of the cross, he's not talking about people outside the church. He's actually talking about people inside the church. He's talking about what Piper said, that what the enemy does is he keeps his deadliest diseases most sanitary. He loves to have his captains in religious garments and housed in temples. In the opening verses of this chapter, Paul reminds us to beware of the dogs, beware of those who would lead us astray. And here at the end, he tells us and reminds us to weep for them which tells me that Paul does not enjoy denouncing people. There's no self-righteousness in this man's heart that he wants to point out this danger to make himself somehow appear to be superior to them. He's brokenhearted that they've lost their way and they're caught up in these lies. He's even more so brokenhearted that they drag other people into their toxicity. And then what he does is he encourages the believers to follow his example. In fact, this isn't the only place that Paul says this. Six different times in the New Testament, Paul says, follow me. Is he egotistical? Does he think he's somehow perfect? Well, no, not at all. I've just explained to you, Paul freely admits he hasn't arrived. God's not finished with him yet. So why does he say, follow me? Well, what he means by that is follow him as he follows Christ. I mean, think of it like this. In life, if you will, the Christian life is this long parade from earth to heaven as at the head of the parade, of course, is Jesus Christ. He leads us every step of the way. But it's a long road, and there's a lot of twists and turns. And there's times that we can even lose sight of Jesus. But you know what? We have an eye on that person who's right in front of us. And though this parade is long and filled with a lot of people, the people in front of us, they can help keep us on track. We need mentors, we need models, we need heroes, if you will, who are farther along than us in the spiritual journey who can help us get to where we need to go. Let me ask you right now, who are you following? Who's ahead of you showing you the way, pointing out the rough patches in the road, making sure you stay on the path? You see, everybody needs this. Nobody's ever gonna get to the place in their spiritual life where they say, hey, I can do this on my own. You know, as your pastor and spiritual leader, I've been here, come September, 30 years. 25 of these last 30 years, I've had a spiritual mentor. Her name's Carolyn Atkins. This is a person with whom I'm an open book. She has complete access to everything about me. I need that. I have to have it. She's my mentor. I value what she brings into my life. Everybody needs a model. Everybody needs a mentor on this journey. No one's accepted. No one's exempted from this requirement. The other question is, who's following you? I mean, think again about this idea of this great parade and it's twisting and turning and you've got an eye on these people in front of you who are encouraging you, who are champions for you, who are warning you from time to time, who are help keeping you on the path. But if you turn around and take a look, there's other people following you. Right now, someone is following you. Right now, you're the best definition of a Christian that someone knows. Right now, someone's borrowing your faith because they don't have enough faith of their own. Right now, someone admires your strength, wants to be like you. They're watching how you fight your personal battles, and that's giving inspiration to them. Someone's hanging tough because you stand tall. Someone's thanking God because of your friendship. Right now, someone is following you. So those two questions, who are you following? Who has access to your inner world? Who is it that you look to as an example of what you would like to be? Who do you like seeing what Christ has done in their life? Who do you want to be more like? We grow with mentors and models. Who are you following? Second, who is following you? Who's looking up to you right now? Who often seeks your advice, asks you questions about the spiritual life? When they're discouraged, they just need someone to to listen and to be an ear for them. Who's coming to you? Those are two vitally important applications for this message. Another, though, is to think about how we relate to God. For some of you listening to me right now, you need to understand, and maybe you've come to understand, how empty the promises of religion actually are. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. Keep all the rules. Manage your morality well, and God will be well-pleased with you. Some of you, it's time to lose your religion for a relationship with Jesus to know what he did for you, to know what he can do in, through, and for you, to know that Jesus Christ, that it's more important not just to understand that he's in me, but that I am in Christ. That literally, that because I am in Christ, God sees me in a different kind of way. Not only is my past forgiven, but I have a new standing with God. I know and I can stand confidently on his truth, on the power of his words. Friends, if I could say anything at all to you from the heart, when my life, when I let this truth sink from my head down into my heart to really start living out the reality that I am fully accepted by God, the things that once defeated me no longer defeated me. The the self-doubt, that always crept into every prayer into every aspect of my spiritual life, they began to evaporate. I began to understand who I am and whose I am and how I stand with God in his perfect acceptance of me. If there's anything people crave today, if there's anything people desperately need to know is that they are loved by God in an irrational way and his plan of salvation provides for them full and complete acceptance. You need that. You don't leave, need to live another day without it. Surrender to him and you'll have it. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for your truth. It's, it's hard-hitting. It meets us where we are. It is so easy, God, to get caught up in the performance trap of legalism, of thinking that somehow I benchmark my goodness by my own morality that somehow, God, it's all about me keeping all the rules that makes you most pleased with me. God, what we find in your word and at the heart of this letter filled with joy is the one way to sink our hearts with you and to know the one fully and completely who is joy, and that is to surrender all of our seeming accomplishments, the big pile of scuba, to just push it all over to you, and God, you take our sins, you take our rags, you take our our wrongdoing, you take it all, and you give us in exchange the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, a brand new standing, a new way of living and being in the world, of knowing God that we're not only fully loved, but we're completely accepted because our lives are in Jesus Christ. And God, for those that are Believers who've been walking this path for some time, it's really important now in this time to be asking the question, who am I following? You know, a a big part, God, of the reason we do these small groups, these points of connection, this time of community, is because how desperately we need one another to be able to go on this journey of the spiritual life. We need to learn from others. They're a step ahead of us. They don't have to be miles down the road, but just one step ahead and we can learn from them. And God, help us all to be mindful that to somebody else, we're their mentor, we're their model. They look to us and they see something in us that they desperately want. Help us to be mindful of them. Help us to, God, give them the attention, the love, and the care that they deserve, the direction that they sometimes need. We thank you so much, God, for... Joining us during this time, I pray God that you will now have complete and utter freedom to do what needs to be done, not just today, but throughout this week in our life. Remind us of these truths. Center us on you. In Jesus' name, amen. So don't leave. Hang around. We've got a time of discussion about the message. This is a great time you can discuss as a family. If your community group is meeting via online services, then please make use of these discussion questions to more fully apply this message to your life. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Hey everyone, that was a powerful message. And before we jump into the discussion video, I just want to remind you guys that there's three simple ways to give. The first way you can give is by going onto our website at springcreekchurch.org give. The second easy way is by taking out your phone and texting the word give to 96995. And the last way to give is you can actually mail into our address. Uh, With all that said, I'm going to give it over to Josh for our discussion.
2: Oh, thanks, Patrick. So glad to be here with you guys. we have got Eric and Patrick. I'm excited to discuss Uh Philippians chapter three, uh, the third week of our joyful series. Chapter three is so great. It's packed with some good stuff. And... We learned a fun new Greek word, so that'll be a fun one to work into our discussion as well. Yeah.
1: Josh, what is that Greek word? Scub,
2: scubula? Scubula? Scuba diving. Scubula is what oh, it is. scubula. Scubula happens, I yeah. believe is what he said. <laughs> but he started by talking about where Paul establishes himself as kind of this, I've got this rap sheet for being so great, better than these people, but they've got this false teaching. You have to be circumcised of the flesh in order to join this group of people. We kind of have that same situation happen in our lives personally, where we kind of dive in to listen to these false teachers or follow this false movement or this uh, incorrect influence in our life. What are some of those things in our lives that fall under that category as far as false teachings?
3: Yeah, I think... I'm not sure exactly, maybe what things like fall under like the category of false teaching. I mean, that would be anything that's not true. I could start listing. That sure, it stuff. could be an
2: opinion almost, but
3: we would really like you know this uh, discussion to last for the next like three days. Yeah, so that'd be good. But you know, the thing that came to mind, like saying that, is is how do we discern what is false teaching? You know, like it's not really up to us to try to be like, yeah, I like what that guy says, or I don't like, you know, what that person says, whatever, uh, you know, we have to test it against scripture. And so I'm just reminded of like the Bereans, you know, like who were commended in their faith for testing what they had heard against the scriptures. And and we we need to become a people of the word of God because people are great at delivering things. They say things in convincing ways. They have good illustrations, but it's like, but is this really true or not? And, um, and, you know, so I think we as Christians, if we, if we want to like stay away from false teachers, we have to know what, what is true teaching. And so we have to, we have to get our personal sense of, of studying God's word so that we can really, you know, come to that conclusion and have the spirit in us, like testifying to the things that we read and, um, allow teaching to just, you know, edify us rather than something that we're just at the whims of whatever teacher, whatever they say. Yeah, that's good.
1: I think what's also a a better word for today is instead of maybe a false teacher, there's a false influencer, because a lot of people aren't going to say that they necessarily listen to somebody's teachings, but they definitely allow them to influence their life. And Mm -hmm. I think what Paul is doing here is he's echoing even what Jesus said when he talked about the prodigal sons, how one son lived in complete and utter squalor and sin, and the other one had this self-righteousness. I think when I think of false teachers or false influencers I think of those two brothers in my life that one always is trying to influence me to go beyond what God's plan is for my life or the other one is always trying to build me up as my own righteousness is is being good enough for God. Um and so I think that there's certain things that I can hear that allow me to be influenced one way or the other.
2: Yeah, I think influence is a great word for it because if I have a lot of trust and hope in someone, then I'm definitely going to believe what they say, yeah, or follow what they post. Uh, I think of phrases like uh, "cleanliness is next to godliness." It's like, oh, I love that scripture. That's got to be real. It's like, oh, that's
3: <laughs> it's not in the
2: Bible at all. Or "God helps those who help, help themselves. themselves." Oh, heard that. <laughs> I think huh? well, that I like that. Depending on who it posts, right. that, I'm all for that. Yeah. <laughs> or if uh, there's there's different rappers who may be Christians. And they may have other lyrics that are not Christian, but it's like, well, I could I could support that. I like the energy behind your music. Then, sure, I stand for what you believe in as well. Um, so I love that it's it's not like we're following false teaching in these modern times. It's I'm I'm all in to what you say. I'm all into your cause, but your cause may not actually align with Scripture. We should hold our our views and our passions and I think of the people that always comment on other people's posts with the Snopes article, like, hey, I just checked on Snopes for, it, for you. This is completely false. That that news story you just shared, here's here's actually what it means. So I think we need to hold up the lens of Scripture more often and be aware we don't have to align with this or that to be a follower of Christ. We have to align with Christ to be a follower of Christ. So that doesn't mean, well, you have to vote Republican or you have to vote Democrat if, you, if you're Christian. Or you have to watch these shows and not that shows if you're a Christian. It's you should align with Christ.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and you know, like, and teachers are valuable. So here we are, like, trying <laughs> yeah. to say that we, oh, we got to be aware, got to be where. Like, God has given the gift of teaching, you know, for the edification of the body of saints. But it's just that, yeah, we have to test it. Yes. It's just, you don't take it at face value. It could be beneficial, but it's like, yeah, let me double check. You know, like if somebody confidently, you know, like on a test, be like, oh, yeah, here's the answer. Here's the answer. And it's like, wait a second, let's test that against the answers. Yeah, that's not right at all. You know, so, yeah, just adding a testing measure, I think, is the important piece.
2: Yes. And using the Bible as that testing measure. Exactly. Takes it it up a notch.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, But as we progress through Philippians 3, Paul kind of establishes here's who we should be following, what we should be doing, uh, and that's where the scubula comes in, and, you know, I consider everything scubula compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and and that scubula could be this good stuff, bad stuff, that we deem necessary, but compared to Jesus, where are we ranking it? And he wraps up the chapter by saying, "I. what is more, the one thing I do, and Keith talked about the the great exchange is this this repentance, this gospel truth that Jesus took it all for us. And Paul responds to the the grace of Jesus by saying, the one thing I do is press on towards the goal of Christ, so that I, I might inherit this goal of Christ. So in your opinion, or you know, in truth, reality, what does that pre- repentance look like for us to press on? What is that one thing we do that helps us to press on to the goal of Christ?
3: The thing is, is when we're... If I look at it the opposite way, when we're not pressing on, it means that we're, you know, living in sin. And so, you know, we have to, to acknowledge sin is to first acknowledge the holiness of God and to understand the righteousness of Christ in the first place. And so to me, that starts with worship. That's like, as a worship leader, this is the very reason like we gather together is to look at God, to cast our eyes on him, to fix our gaze on who he is and what he's done for us. And then when we see that picture, then when you kind of look in the mirror, you go, oh, that doesn't look so good, (laughs) you know? And then that's kind of what leads to repentance and an acceptance of his grace So I guess if there's one thing that I press on, it's like, okay, hey, I might just be kind of in the muck of life. I don't know my way forward. You know, I got to get into the, hey, the Psalms of Ascent, right? Just tying in a plug for Psalms midweek. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Um, You know, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come from? Well, now I'm looking to God and who he is. And it's in light of that that I actually find the way forward.
1: I think you're totally right. When you have your eyes on Jesus, it's hard to stay in that muck, in that mire of sin. Um, But I think it's especially important to actually uh, acknowledge that that a lot of people get confused on what sin is. um, Because I've had a lot of conversations, especially recently, with people who think that just because they're tempted that they've actually sinned tempting, being tempted by something does not mean you've sinned. Yeah. Wanting to do something does not mean you've sinned. It says that Jesus was tempted in every single way, yet he did not sin. So if anybody's listening and you feel tempted by something, do not automatically feel like you've sinned. Um, you have the ability to fight that temptation. And so repentance to, to me uh, comes from the idea that that your heart is not hardened towards sin. I think some people either feel so tempted or they've given into sin so much that they, and this has even been true in my own life, that you accept it as who you are or what you do. As long as you're continuing to reject that that is who you are or what you do and that Jesus has something better from you, you're fighting sin. You're fighting that temptation and you don't have to give into it.
2: Yeah, that's really good. And I think the the word you use, continuing, this daily continuing, Paul said, I press on because he hasn't obtained this. He hasn't finished the race. He hasn't earned the prize. I think that's the reminder for us, is it's not like, oh, well, I'm saved. Jesus saved me, so I get to coast. I'm straight chilling until I get to (laughs) heaven, and everything's gonna be great. It's this, I'm not there yet, so I'm gonna press on. And for me, in this season, it's a daily surrender, because we're all kind of out of control in some ways, and so daily choosing to say, today I'm pressing on. I'm not going to passively let my faith happen today. I'm going to press on, surrender my will, surrender my desire to just sit on the couch and try not to do anything today, and instead press on and dig in and lead my family and lead my wife and lead my kids and uh, wrap my my prayers around people that need them the most right now instead of just letting life happen. So we should press on, and I think that's the call for us from this message It's cool to see how we're progressing through Philippians as we see chapter 1 and 2 giving us a a launching pad to chapter 3 and pointing us to next week, whereas last week we're talking about others. Are we whining or shining? Well, if we're shining, then that means we're continuing to press on. We're not falling for all these false influences in our lives. If we're shining, we're continuing to move forward, and so we move forward into another week as we wrap up our discussion next week. So thank you guys for joining me and I look forward to hearing how people receive this conversation and seeing them next week.
3: Yeah, thanks
1: Josh. That's good.